Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to Hay. And we're delighted to welcome you to this in the next series in the, we're running with Cambridge University. Eric Wolfe is the Royal Society Research Professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at Cambridge University. His research areas include paleoclimate from ice cores, past climate and environment. And he's here today to tell you all about lessons from the past and what we can learn for the future. Please would you give Eric Wolfe a warm hey welcome. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for coming. Um, I can just about see there are some people there, so yes, there are. So I'm going to be talking about some of the things. My, my speciality is past climate, in particular from ice cores. I worked for the British Antarctic Survey for about 30 years and then moved to the University of Cambridge a couple of years ago. Uh, but I've also done a little work on how that translates into what we know about the future, in particular leading uh, a publication by the Royal Society and the US National Academy of Sciences on uh, climate science. So that's my credentials, and that's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to start off with something really basic about how we understand the climate of a planet. Earth is a planet, so how do we understand the climate of Earth? And I've gone around for years telling people that climate is fiendishly complicated. You couldn't possibly understand it. It requires clever people like me to do it. And in a way, I'm right, because understanding the climate of hay on Y is really complicated. <laughs> but understanding the climate of a planet, actually, is deceptively simple at one level, if you, if you look at it the right way. Because all we've got is energy coming in and energy going out, and they have to get into balance. So the energy arrives from the sun. That's the only source of energy to the Earth except for a very small amount that comes from the centre of the Earth. But once you've got a crust, and we have a crust on our planet, that's a minute amount, so we can ignore it. And then you have to get rid of that energy. Some of it goes away from light surfaces, like ice or cloud. That's reflection. And the rest of it's radiated back to space as what we call long-wave or heat radiation. And that's how we get rid of the rest of the planet, and that's what determines the temperature of the planet. So essentially, the climate at the scale of the planet is really simple. It's determined by only three things. The sun, how strong it is and how far away it is, the color of the planet, and the composition of the atmosphere, which determines how much is radiated away. And if, any of, if that gets out of balance, if any of those three things change, then the Earth has to either warm or cool to compensate. OK, I went to a talk yesterday where somebody was talking about Pornography, <coughs> pornography in ancient Rome, and he gave a health warning before he did it, because it was so shocking. I'm actually about to do something even more shocking than that. I'm going to put up an equation, but I promise it won't be there for long. OK, it won't be there for long, and it's not there so that you understand the equation, it's only so that you understand that there is an equation. In other words, that there's something behind what I'm talking about. So this is an equation that more or less says what I just said on the last slide, but in a mathematical way. And there are only three things in it I'm allowed to change, because everything else on there is a constant, except for the temperature. So the only things I'm allowed to change are those three things. So what are they? And if I 
change them, if I, don't, if I change one of them, then the temperature is going to change. So what are they? I've got rid of the equation. You can relax. Okay, no more equations, I promise. So the first one's the solar constant, the energy arriving at the top of the atmosphere. That's determined by how strong the sun is and how far away it is, which, is, which changes on tens to hundreds of thousands of year timescales. The second one's what we call the albedo. That's how much is reflected. So ice reflects 90% of the light, or at least snow, reflects 90% of the sunlight. The ocean, you know, is... is pretty close to black. I know we talk about it as blue, but it's pretty close to black. It reflects only about 10% of the sunlight. And then finally, what we call the emissivity, which is how much of the energy that's radiated as heat actually gets out of the atmosphere. And that's determined really only by the composition of the atmosphere. That's the greenhouse effect. So if any one of those changes, then the temperature has to change. That's what that equation said. So I'm going to go way out of my comfort zone now. My ice cores only go back less than a million years at the moment. We hope to go a little bit further soon, but at the moment they go back less than a million years. I'm going to start going back three to four billion years with the first example I'm going to give, which is going to give us our first lesson. It's called the faint young sun. And what it is, it's pretty simple. The sun was less strong three billion years ago, four billion years ago than it is today. We know that from looking at all the other stars that are like the sun in the universe, that they always get stronger with time if they're like the sun. So three billion years ago, the sun was about 25%, about a quarter less strong than it is today. And with that, if you, well, if you have no atmosphere, you would certainly have a frozen planet, but that would be true today. So we know the greenhouse effect works, because if you didn't have an atmosphere, we'd be frozen. But actually, three billion years ago, it should have been frozen even with an atmosphere like the one we have today. And yet, we know it wasn't. And those rocks, I'm not really a geologist, even though I'm in an Earth science department, but I'm assured by my colleagues that those rocks tell you there was water on Earth three billion years ago. That's from Greenland. Those are the sort of um, lava-type rocks that you only get when the lava cools underwater. And there's lots of other evidence that there was water. So in order for that to be true, in order for the planet not to be frozen, somehow it must have been warmer than we think. And there's only two ways to make it warmer than we think, because we've said the sun, we've fixed the sun, we've said it was weaker. So we've now only got two things to change. I can change the albedo, the reflectivity of the Earth, or I can change the greenhouse effect. Well, you can try changing the albedo by getting rid of all the low clouds or getting rid of all the continents that are a bit lighter than the ocean and it doesn't help. You still can't get there. The planet's still frozen. So what must have been going on that kept the planet liquid three billion years ago is a stronger greenhouse effect. And actually, we don't know exactly what it was. We don't know exactly which of these gases was responsible, probably a mixture of them. But there was a greenhouse effect. A second example is actually, I've now gone through 80% of Earth's history to snowball Earth about 700 million years ago. And there's lots of evidence that there was ice at the equator at those times, a couple of times, for a, for a few million years. The evidence comes on that top picture. You can see a, a big lump of stone in the middle of a sediment. The only way to get that stone into a marine sediment, which is what that, that was before it was uplifted, is to drop it out of an iceberg, transport it out to sea in an iceberg and drop it. And then on the bottom, you see scratch marks where there was clearly ice. So somewhere around there, there was there was ice. 
So we understand very well why 700 billion years ago it was really cold. The sun was about the same strength as today, a little bit weaker, but about the same. And it was the same strength before, during, and after that snowball. The planet was cold because it had such a high albedo, because there was so much ice. So that's kind of trite, that's simple. The question is, how did it get into that cold, and how did it get out again? And now I've only got one thing left. I've fixed the sun, I've fixed the albedo, because I've told you it, there was no ice before, no ice after, lots of ice during. So I've only got one thing to change, the greenhouse effect. So what must have happened is that the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere must have been going along, and they must have slowly reduced to the point where the Earth went into this snowball. It froze. And then while it was in the snowball, they must have started to rise again and get to very high levels to get out of it again. It's the only explanation for how you could get into and out of a snowball. It's probably to do with the balance between weathering of rocks, which takes CO2 out, and volcanism, which puts CO2 back into the atmosphere. It doesn't really matter what it's to do with, although we kind of understand why that would happen but it's a greenhouse effect in action. So this takes us to lesson one, which is the greenhouse effect definitely happens. If it hadn't happened, Earth's history wouldn't look anything like it does. OK, now we're going to get into my comfort zone and perhaps yours as well, the last million years. So we've gone through 99.9% .9 of Earth's history now. And we're going to talk about what I'm really comfortable with, which is ice cores. And I'll talk more about them as we go along. But firstly, I should show you one. So that's what an ice core looks like, just so you understand. I've, I obviously don't speak as distinctly as I think I do, because I've twice given a talk a bit like this, and at the end of it, someone thought I was talking about icicles hanging off a roof or something. So ice cores, they're cylinders of ice drilled out of the ice. That's the kind of drill you would use. And you can see it's typically 10 centimeters diameter couple of meters long each time, and you keep drilling down and pulling up two meters at a time until you get to the bottom in the best case, which could be 3,000 meters, three kilometers. So how do ice cores work? There's an ice cap, it snows, and the snow falls and takes with it things from the atmosphere. And then that gets buried by the next year's snowfall and the next year's snowfall and the next year's snowfall. The layers thin. Uh, that's not a particularly important part of the story for this point. They thin, and then you can drill through them, and you've got a sequence of layers in order, in chronological order, which you can retrieve. And we can go back so far 800,000 years in Antarctica and 128,000 in Greenland. You can get ice cores from other parts of the world, from high mountains in the Himalayas, the Alps, the Andes, and so on, and people do. Um, it's fantastically hard work to do. Everything I'm going to be talking about comes from Greenland and Antarctica, and this is a map which highlights the important places on Earth, as far as I'm concerned. So what type of information do we have in the ice? Well, we have kind of three types of information. The water itself doesn't really matter whether you know about isotopes, but by looking at the ratio of different types of water, you can tell what the temperature was at the time the snow fell. Then there are all kinds of things that fall out with the snow, like pollution and volcanic eruption material that tells you other things about the atmosphere. And then finally, and the thing that ice cores are probably most famous for, is the bubbles that form when the snow turns to ice under pressure at depth. It doesn't melt and refreeze like it would here to form ice. It 
slowly get squashed together so that the snowflakes get pushed together until finally they form a solid matrix where the bubbles are in a container of ice. And you can literally, and it is actually what's done, you break open the bubble and measure the concentration of gases in that bubble. Of course, you don't look at one bubble, you look at lots of bubbles, but that's, that's what you effectively do. And that's just to show you there really are bubbles in the ice. That's a piece of ice about, uh, that's about seven centimeters across. It's about five millimeters deep into the screen. And you can see the bubbles are a few tenths of a millimeter across. Just to illustrate that a bit more, here's a video of somebody putting a piece of that ice into water just to heat it. And you start to see the bubbles coming off. Actually, if I had the sound on, you'd hear it cracking open because they're under a little bit of pressure. And as they get near the outside of the ice, they, they tend to explode. So the ice cracks open, and you see the bubbles coming up. Very nice in a gin and tonic provided we haven't drilled it with an oil-based drilling fluid. Which... <laughs> so the next thing you need to know is how we get these ice cores. And this is a video taken uh, about 10 years ago of how we collect the ice cores. And I'll try and commentate on it. I'll try and keep up. So here we're on the top of the ice sheet. There's a tent. It's a very tall tent to allow the drill to stand up. You'll see that in a minute. So here's the drill going into the ice. It looks as though it's going into wood, but that's just wood put there to stop snow falling into the hole. So the drill's going in. You can see the top section that grabs onto the hole you've already drilled and drills the next bit, and then the cable that lowers it down. So at this point, they're at about 2,400 meters deep. There's some rule that the drillers who designed this whole thing sit in a warm cabinet, while scientists like me have to stand outside at minus 20. I've never understood the rule, but it's a rule. And now two hours have passed, and the drill's come up again. It was a rather boring two hours, so I didn't make you sit through it. And the drill's now horizontal. You can see, you can see the teeth. You can see it's a pretty simple mechanical tool, and you could see some ice at the end. You can see some liquid falling off. That's actually this drilling fluid I was talking about, so you can ask me about that later if you want. Uh, you don't actually see it, but they're about to do the most important thing they could possibly do, and I am not joking, even though it will get a laugh. They're going to put an arrow pointing upwards in pencil on the core because it really is, is bad if you turn a thousand years upside down. <laughs> and you can see from what they're doing that it's very easy to imagine doing it. So there the, the cores are sitting there. You can see they've actually been cut now. They don't have those facets on the end. They're, they've now been cut with a saw, but they're sat there waiting for other things to be done at minus 25. And then eventually they go into the lab next door where this guy cuts them on a bandsaw. It's actually just a normal metalworking bandsaw, um, and you really can cut the ice that way. And it's because different sections are going to different laboratories in Europe, in this case. You can see all the different sections there that we're going to cut. And then eventually the sections are packed and put in boxes. Normally they've got polystyrene in them. This one, uh, this was a temporary box where the polystyrene wasn't yet in there to keep them cold. Okay, we'll move on. So that's how you get an ice core. So we've got our ice core. What information do we get out? So here's the one of the first results that is really important from ice cores. This is carbon dioxide in parts per million. It doesn't matter what the units are. Going from 1000 AD on the left there to, to, to the present. You can see the blue line on the right, that's measurements in the atmosphere. That's people sampling in the atmosphere, which has been done since, paradoxically, since the year I was born, 1957. 
and uh, going up to the present, and it's just got above 400 parts per million this year. I haven't put, this, I haven't put the 2015 value on yet. So that's the blue line, and everything else on there comes from ice cores, and I like this way of showing this particular result because it's got a lot of information on it. Firstly, you see that the rise above what had been the norm for the previous millennium occurred in about 1830, kind of industrial revolution time. You can see the increase since then has been 40%. You can see that there were some wobbles before that. We still argue over whether they're natural or also due to human activity. And you can also see you get the same result from four different ice cores in Antarctica, all of which come from different places. So if there was any artifact in enclosing that air in the bubble, you'd expect it to be different at each place because the level of other impurities is different, the temperature's different, the amount of snowfall's different, and yet you get the same result from all of them, from which I conclude that there isn't an artifact, and this is the real result. You can do the same thing for other greenhouse gases like methane, and you get an even stronger increase, and almost a factor of three over the last 200 years. And this leads to lesson two, which is greenhouse gases really have been increasing over the last two centuries, and the only way to explain this is human activity. Firstly, because it didn't happen any time before. I could, have, I could show you the last 10,000 years, and you still wouldn't see anything like that. And secondly, because actually we measure other things, we measure isotopes of carbon in the carbon dioxide that prove that it's due to human activity. Okay, now I'm going to talk about a much longer time period than 1,000 years. I'm going to go back 800,000 years, and this is actually the same project where you saw the video. It's what's called the EPICA project, European Project for Ice Coring in Antarctica. It was funded by several nations and the European Union, and those of you who are maybe wandering a little can entertain yourself by working out what the flags at the top are. They're in alphabetical order. That's the only clue I'm giving you. Those were the countries involved. So Dome C, where I spent two, two summers, ten, two, two lots of ten weeks, in the, circled in the red there. It's about 1,000 kilometers inland on top of the ice sheet. It's about 3,000 meters altitude, which, because of the cold, gives you quite a strong altitude effect. You actually get given altitude sickness tablets when you go there. The snowfall rate there, afraid that's in units that are odd to you, but it means an inch, the equivalent of an inch of rainfall a year. So... It's, it's a desert, and that's why you get so many years, because there's such a low snowfall rate. And it's cold, minus 54.5 is the mean annual. It did reach minus 18 when I was there, but I don't want to, you to think that it means that it was really tough. Actually, it's quite a nice place, because it's so far inland that you get almost no water vapour and therefore almost no clouds, so it's nearly always sunny. That's what it looks like, um, just around... There, you can see the tent that you saw in the video, the drilling tent. So this was the little tent city that we had while we were drilling. And then on the right here, just there, you see two things that look like gas holders, and they became the thing at the top left, which is a permanent station that the French and Italians have people who spend each winter there. It's a station called Concordia. So that's where this core came from. It went to 3,270 metres, so three kilometres, roughly two miles deep. But remember, that's not two miles of continuous core, that's roughly 2,002 metre pieces. And that's supposed to prove to you that I was there, because somewhere in that suit is me. <laughs> of course, it doesn't prove I was there. It could have been set up in a cold room anywhere, but anyway, I was there. 
And here's the result. This is a graph. I know you probably don't like graphs, some of you, but this is a graph that's going to keep coming back time after time in the rest of this talk. So pay attention for a couple of seconds, and then you'll be comfortable with it. So what it has is age in thousands of years before present. So that's 800,000 years over here. The present is over here. And on the, on the vertical axis, that's temperature relative to the present. So the last 3,000 years is zero. The average of the last 3,000 years is zero on this plot. So anything above zero is warmer than the last 3,000 years. Anything below is colder. And what you see there, where the arrow is there, that's what we call the Holocene. So that's the period that geologically we're in at the moment, because the Anthropocene hasn't been defined yet if you're worried about the Anthropocene. So that's the Holocene, the last 10,000 years when it's been pretty warm, the present interglacial. Then there's the last glacial, what we colloquially call the last ice age. So that, when we say ice age, what we mean is that there was ice in northern Europe and North America, as far as Wisconsin in North America, and as far as the Wash, for example, in the UK. But it was also much colder in Antarctica at the same time, about 10 degrees colder in Antarctica at the same time, at the maximum. Then we've got the last interglacial, about 130,000 years ago, the last time that it was as warm or warmer than the present. And that's actually a bit warmer than the present in Antarctica, and we'll come back to that later. And then the previous glacial, and so on. So what you see on here is roughly 100,000-year cycles of warm and cold, I'm not going to talk about why that is to any great extent, just very briefly. But that was already known from marine sediments before we ever drilled this ice core, so that wasn't a huge surprise. And then we've got a tendency to stronger cycles in the later part of the period, which leads to the fact that there are several periods there that are a little bit warmer than today. And given where we're going in the next 100 years, that's a very valuable thing to study, even though the reason why it was warm is different from that of today. OK, so that's the plot you're going to keep seeing, and you're going to see it again here, because the first question you should be asking is what happened to carbon dioxide during these big changes in climate. So at the bottom here is exactly the same plot in the same colour red that you saw before, and then at the top is carbon dioxide taken from the same ice core over the same time period, and you can see they look incredibly similar. There are some differences. I know where they are, and I kind of know why they are. But nonetheless, if you took two environmental records of anything, if you measured the concentration of ozone in the air outside 10 metres apart, it wouldn't look as similar as this. These are incredibly similar, given that they're completely different parts of the climate. And what they tell you is that there's a feedback going on here, where the temperature is causing the CO2 to rise, and the CO2 is causing the temperature to rise, and they're feeding back on each other. There's no other way to make two things look as similar as this. What I didn't put on here, because this is, you can see in the cold periods, the CO2 is low. In the warm periods, it's high. What I didn't put in is the last 200 years. So now I'm just going to add the last 200 years, and I have to squash it down to do that. So you probably can't even see it at the back. But I've had to stretch the scale up to 400 and put on the green, which is the atmospheric measurements, and the black and red, which are the ice core measurements for the last 1,000 years. And you can see we're completely out of the range of the last 800,000 years. That's what 800 Ka means. I'm sorry, I should have changed that. The last 800,000 years. We're completely out of that range, so we don't have an analogue in the past, 
and we're in a very strange situation where something's been done to the atmosphere that hasn't been done for a very long time, actually probably for about four million years. It's not just that the concentration's high, it's also the rate of change. When you look at that change, I can't, I can't reach it, but when you look at the change on the blue line coming out of the last ice age, it averages, although there are some periods when it goes up a few parts per million quite quickly, on average it goes up by about 20 parts per million in a thousand years, so 20 of those units on the left at the top every thousand years. And we've gone up by 20 parts per million in the last 10 years, so we're increasing the carbon dioxide concentration 100 times faster than the natural system did. I'm just going to focus on the difference between the very coldest period, the last glacial maximum, and the warm period that we're in now. That very cold period is that one I was talking about where there's an ice sheet over North America, that's a schematic of where it went, and an ice sheet over Northern Europe, again, that's a schematic on the left there. So here's the same thing, it's the temperature in black and the CO2 in either red or blue, depending on which plot it is. It's two different versions of the same thing from different places over the time between the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago and the beginning of the warm period 10,000 years ago. So firstly, you can see they're very similar, again, over that time period. But there are a few things to learn from this, and we're going to get to lessons three and four as a result of this. So the first one, actually you can't tell it from this, but I can tell you from other things that we've looked at, that the net global warming was about five degrees. So five degrees on average globally between the last glacial maximum and the present. Now, I think you would agree that the climate of the last glacial maximum, the planet was quite a lot different to what it is today. The winds were different, the precipitation patterns were different, where, where it rained, the temperature was different, there was ice in lots of places. So five degrees is a lot. So that's just worth remembering to give yourself a feeling for when people talk about global warming of one degree, two degrees, five degrees. Five degrees is a lot. Five degrees changes the planet. It was triggered by changes in where the sun's energy was arriving, which had to do with the way the Earth's orbit changed, which I don't have time to explain. That's what triggered it. But nonetheless, if you look at the net global change in solar energy between 20,000 years ago and today, it's almost zero. So if you actually want to say in equilibrium, why is the climate different now from how it was 20,000 years ago? The answer isn't to do with the sun. That's to do with why it changed, but not with why it's different you understand the difference. So the equilibrium reason why the Earth is different now from 20,000 years ago is twofold. It's because the albedo changed and the greenhouse gases changed. And actually we know they changed roughly, 50, they, they contributed roughly 50-50 to that. So the albedo changed because there was more ice, both land ice and sea ice, and the greenhouse gases changed, you saw it, the CO2 changed. So lesson three is that five degrees is a big climate change, just as a number. And lesson four, you can actually do what we call the climate sensitivity in your head now. So we're going to do that. It's a little bit tricky. So what I'm going to say to you is we know that the climate changed by about five degrees. About half of that came from greenhouse gases, so two and a half degrees let's say two degrees to be generous, because it might only have been four degrees, so let's say two degrees. 
from greenhouse gases. And the greenhouse gases changed from 180 to 280 parts per million, so they didn't quite double. They did a bit less than doubling. So in your head, you've just done what, scientists, what thousands of scientists spend years doing. You've worked out the climate sensitivity. Two degrees for a not quite doubling of CO2, so three degrees for a doubling of CO2. And it turns out that three degrees is right in the mid-range of what models tell you will happen in the future for a doubling of CO2. So the paleo record, the record from ice cores, is confirming that coming out of the last ice age, the climate sensitivity, its sensitivity to changing greenhouse gases, was about what we think it is for the future. And I like to say that because people always worry that models are just models. They're just One of my colleagues who's a modeler says, you don't want to know about models. They're a bit like sausages. You don't want to know what's in them. But this isn't models. This is just, you can do that calculation in your head that it must be about three degrees. It can't be one degree. It can't be 10 degrees. OK, so that was lesson four. Now we're going to look at something different. Antarctica, we've gone back to exactly the same picture as before. Antarctica is only part of the picture. So let's look at Greenland. So now we're going to go right to the north of the planet. Let's look at Greenland over just this period, just one climate cycle here. So there at the top is Antarctica. I've been a bit naughty there because it doesn't say temperature on the left-hand scale, but effectively it is temperature on the left-hand scale. It's, it's, it's the thing that we use to tell us about temperature, and I just haven't converted it. And then at the bottom is Greenland, a Greenland ice core, actually from this place here, pretty much in the centre of Greenland. What you can see at the moment is just that Greenland is spikier. And why is it spiky? It's because it's got all these events that look quite sharp. And we call those, just for interest, we call them Dansgaard-Ershka events. At the top there is Willy Dansgaard and Hans Ershka, who I had the pleasure of working with in the early part of my career, who these events are named after. So now let's just, to make it easier for you to see, let's just focus on the last 40,000 years so you can see them. So there they are. So what happened was several times, actually 23 times during the last ice age, Greenland temperature, please remember this is only Greenland, it's not global. Greenland temperature suddenly jumped up. Actually, in about 40 years, it jumped by about 10 degrees. And then it slowly cooled, and actually there was a rapid cooling at the end, which you can barely see on here. And then it stayed cold for 1,000 years or so, and then it jumped up again. So what this represents, because we actually know this isn't a global event, you do see something like this in records from lakes in Britain, for example. But, but, but not as extreme, so it's a, something that's centred on the North Atlantic. In Antarctica, you see something that's a bit the opposite, where it's cooling during these warmings. So what this is, is a very rapid regional change in climate. And what we think is happening is related to this picture of how ocean circulation works. And I don't know if there are any ocean, oceanographers in the audience. Luckily, because I can't see you with the lights, I can't tell whether anyone's pulling a face Oceanographers hate this picture because it's too simple, but I, but I understand it, so I keep showing it. So it's to do with how heat's transported around the ocean today, and the red lines are heat being transported in the surface ocean, and the blue line is cold water being transported in the deep ocean, at least in the Atlantic. So what you see is that heat is transported in the ocean from the southern hemisphere across the tropics and into the north, and we experience this as the Gulf Stream, but that's only part of this circulation system, what has been coined the ocean conveyor belt that takes heat to the north. And there are many reasons why this happens. It's partly to do with the wind, but it's also partly to do with 
the dense water sinking, and it sinks in those two white blobs at the top there, which are the, the Nordic Seas and the Labrador Sea. And it sinks because it's dense. It's both salty because of sea ice forming and cold, so it's dense and it sinks. And that's essential for this whole circulation system to work. And what we think happened during the last ice age was that many times fresh water, so that's not salty water, in other words, it's melted ice coming off North America or off Europe, went into the ocean in those white blobby areas and made the water too light to sink. And so it couldn't sink there, and it could no longer take the heat up to the north. It probably sank further south somewhere. But it couldn't take the heat up towards Greenland and towards Britain. And so you got this rapid regional climate change, where you got less heat in the north, which meant there was more heat in the south, and then eventually it would restart again and vice versa. Again, it doesn't matter too much whether we understand the mechanism, which I have to say we don't completely. But it does lead to lesson five, that the climate system has some surprises in it. We would never have believed that sort of thing could happen if it just came out of a model. But it did happen. It definitely happened. We may not be able to explain it, but it definitely happened. So abrupt regional changes, and those are regional changes, are possible, and we definitely want to avoid them. That's lesson five. Got one more lesson before we move on to the future in a proper way, and that's to do with the last interglacial. So I've put this... You must be getting bored with this picture by now. But anyway, I've put this picture up again. And now we're going to focus just on the last interglacial there, the last time it was warmer than today. You're probably thinking, why was it warmer than today? It wasn't because of greenhouse gases. The greenhouse gases were about the same as before the Industrial Revolution. It was actually to do with the Earth's orbit that made the northern hemisphere warm, that meant there was a lot of heat going to the north, not much to the south. The south also got warm, though, for another reason, which was probably to do with the ocean circulation. So it's complicated as to why it was warm, but it was warmer. And we can see that it was actually warmer in both the north and the south. And I'm sorry, this is a slightly messy figure, but it's the best I can do, because reconstructing Greenland temperature back through that interglacial is difficult, because you're reaching the bottom of the ice sheet. So what you see at the top is exactly what you've seen before. The red line is temperature, and the blue horizontal line is today's temperature. So you can see that for about four or 5,000 years, the temperature was warmer than present. And then at the bottom is the same for Greenland. You can see that for about maybe a bit longer than 5,000 years, the temperature was warmer than the present in Greenland as well. And these are two important places in the world. It doesn't mean the whole world was warmer, although it probably was, but not that much warmer. But these are important places because this is where we have ice sheets. So this is where you can get sea level from. They weren't warmer simultaneously even, which is an interesting point, but they were warmer at some point in that warm period. And the people, which is another group of people, I'm, I'm not one of them, who look at past sea level, and the way they do it, or the Best, the, the most reliable way they do it is to look at corals. They look at fossil corals that, because corals only grow just below the ocean surface, if you see a coral that's above the ocean surface, then, in other words, in a rock on a, on a cliff, then you know that the sea level's changed. Now, it might be a local change in sea level, but in some cases, it's going to be a global change in sea level, and that's what these people do. They work out whether it's a local change or a global change. And what this paper that I've 
reference down here did was to summarize the last 14 attempts to estimate sea level in the last interglacial. And you can see that they're getting, they think they're getting better at it in the sense that the uncertainty that they put on, that's what those vertical bars is, the uncertainty, is getting narrower. And the last few attempts have all converged on the fact that sea level was between six and nine meters higher than today in the last interglacial. So the temperature was warmer in Greenland and Antarctica by, what did you see, four or five degrees, about the same as we're expecting in 2100 if we don't do anything about fossil fuel emissions. For a long time, it has to be said, it was warm for a long time, so you need a long time to melt an ice sheet. And what happened was six to nine metres of sea level, which would be disastrous. I mean, six to nine metres and London's gone. So you, no point building a Thames barrier. You've got to build a barrier along the entire city. So six to nine metres is really a lot. It must mean that part of the Greenland ice sheet went and part of the Antarctic ice sheet went. You can't get it all out of Greenland. And that's consistent with this warming in both hemispheres. So it had to come from one of those ice sheets. So what lesson six is, is that what this result, because it's just a result, shows us is that if the warming that we could be heading for by 21 was sustained for a long time, then we would have to adapt to very large change in sea level eventually. Not in my lifetime, not in the lifetime of anyone in this audience, but eventually. So that's again something we want to avoid. So here's the summary of my lessons from the past. The greenhouse effect is real. We know it is because it's controlled Earth's climate in the past. The climate just wouldn't look like it is if you didn't have the greenhouse effect. There's no other way to explain it. Humans have made CO2 concentrations increase in an unprecedented way. I showed you the last 1,000 years, and then later I showed you that it's unprecedented in the last 800,000 years. The past is consistent with our best estimates of what's going to happen in the future. It's not cast iron. There are ways to explain that in another way and to say, well, maybe the, ice, the change in ice was more important than you think, Eric, and the CO2 was less important. But that's the best estimate we can do. We definitely don't want to go to five degrees warming because five degrees changes the planet. Okay, we can't go from an ice age to an interglacial because we're already in an interglacial, but we can go from an interglacial to a position where large parts of the planet are difficult to live in. We want to avoid abrupt changes like the ones we saw in Greenland. We sometimes call those things tipping points. But they clearly can occur. I'd say we probably aren't near one, actually. I'm not one of the catastrophists who think that we're just about to destroy the ocean circulation or that we're just about to release all the Arctic methane. But on the other hand, we know that they are there, those tipping points, and we don't know where they are. So the best way to avoid getting near them is to keep the warming as low as possible. And then if we had really high polar temperatures for millennia, we get a lot of sea level rise, and we want to avoid that as well. So now let's look at the present and the future. Well, the first thing to say is the climate is warming. This is the last 150 years of global climate reconstructed by three different groups independently. Um, you can see now we've got 2015, which was very warm. 2016 is already heading to be as warm as 2015, so it'll look the same. And just as an aside, I can't, I can't stop myself picking at climate skeptics, but they've been going on for years about the hiatus, and once you put 2015 on, you can't even see the hiatus. You just can't guess where it used to be. So it was, 
it was somewhere up here. And it's not a hiatus, it's just a slowdown that's gone away. So climate's warming and emissions are increasing. Now, I haven't put the good news on here because the emissions did flatten off in 2014 and 2015, so they're about the same as in 2013. Not sure that's permanent. It might be to do with the state the economy's in at the moment, although previous financial crises didn't slow it down for very long. But nonetheless, we're still putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere, and most of that's 50% of that CO2 is remaining in the atmosphere. So it's not like we've stopped putting CO2 in the atmosphere. We've just stopped increasing how much we're putting in. The IPCC, which you may have heard of, used four scenarios for the future. And I've only put these up to explain to you the, the plots that are going to follow. They had these different possible ways that the economy and our social system could evolve in order to put carbon in the atmosphere. The one on the right, which they called RCP 2.6, was a situation where we really did aggressive things to stop carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. We essentially had some kind of command economy that stopped carbon dioxide from being put in the atmosphere. The one on the left, RCP 8.5, is what you would get if you did absolutely nothing, if you didn't even try to produce renewable energy or anything else, and you just carried on. And what we've been doing until now is kind of somewhere, we're on a path somewhere around here at the moment, between the two, between the worst and the next worst. But I'm only going to show you plots that relate to this scenario where we do far more than is possible, and this scenario where we do absolutely nothing. So if you say, what's climate going to do in the future? So the blue line is the do absolutely everything, and you can see we stabilize the temperature at what's actually about one and a half degrees above, above the pre-industrial. And in red is the range for different models. That 39 means there were 39 different models tried this. That's what would happen if you did absolutely nothing to reduce emissions. And you can see you get four or five degrees above the, above the pre-industrial. But what does that mean in reality? Because we don't live in the average global temperature. We live in hay on Y today. So this is what it means for the planet. That's, again, the two scenarios. Take the one on the right. One thing you can see is that it's very patchy where the warming is. That's because the Arctic tends to warm more than the rest of the planet. That's because of the ice disappearing. And the land tends to warm more than the ocean. That's because the ocean absorbs heat and takes away some of the heating over the ocean. So what you can see is that under that do-nothing scenario, we could potentially go up to 4.8 degrees, which is pressures close to that 5 degrees I said you really must avoid. And some parts of the planet warm a lot more than that. So if you look at northern Europe, it's somewhere over here in the red, 7 or 8 degrees. And other things would happen as well, like the ocean getting more acidic, but I don't think I've got time to talk about that. It would also stay warm for a long time, and the reason is it takes a long time for that CO2 to be removed from the atmosphere. So if you, put in, if you carry on putting CO2 into the atmosphere until the year 2300, which is what is shown in the pink line at the top, then the CO2 has only reduced by about 20% a thousand years later. Eventually, it will get back to almost the original, but it will take thousands and thousands of years, and that's just because the oceans can't deal with it. The ocean has to deal with it by burying it in sediments, and it just can't do it fast enough. So if you do that, you would be warm for a long time. 
for those thousands of years it needs to remove an ice sheet, unless you're going to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere again, which we'll come to in a minute. So the question is, what are our options? Because I, I did put the word options in the title. So what are our options? Well, there are four possible options, and I suspect we'll do a mixture of all four. There's acceptance, just say it's going to happen. I don't know what to do about it. I'm scared of it. I don't know what to do about it. We'll just ride it out. The second one is to adapt, make changes in preparation. That's things like raising the Thames barrier or preparing for slightly different agriculture or something like that. Probably relatively easy in the UK, rather hard in places that are already close to the edge. You can mitigate, that's reduce the emissions, or you can do geoengineering, that's reversing or countering the change by, well, either by reflecting sunlight, which I really hate, or by removing CO2 from the atmosphere, which might be possible. There are actually two other things that you could do, which is my opinion about what we're probably doing at the moment, in fact, despite our fine words at the Paris meeting. One of those is blind faith, just saying future generations will solve it. They always solve these things. That's essentially the, the Nigel Lawson argument, actually, that when you say that the discount rate is sufficiently high, is it high or low? Anyway, whichever way around it is, that there's no cost of climate change. Essentially, what you're saying is future generations will solve it. OK, maybe. Or you can just deny it's happening. Say, well, it's not happening, so we don't have to do anything about it. Getting a bit harder to do. One of the things that's come out of recent science is to say that there's also a, a rather simple equation, that it turns out that the amount of warming you're going to get in 2100, shall we say, is pretty much proportional to the amount of CO2 that's been put into the atmosphere since the start of the Industrial Revolution. And that's, it's, there's actually a quite complicated reason for that, because there's one thing that should be making that curve bend over that way, and another thing that should be making it bend over the other way, and they cancel out. So it turns out that the amount of carbon dioxide that you put in the atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution is what determines how warm you're going to get by 2100. And people did some calculations after the Paris meeting in December where they said that they, would, that they were going to keep global temperature well below 2 degrees and pursue efforts to limit it to 1.5. Well, the 1.5, they did an estimate that in order to have a 50% chance of staying below 1.5 degrees, based on that plot I just showed you, you could only afford to carry on emitting CO2 at the current rate for another 10 years. That's what that little wheel there tells you another 10 years, and then you've got to stop completely. So after that 10 years, I mean, clearly that's not going to happen. And even two degrees is pretty challenging. You can only afford to do it for 28 years to have a 50% chance of keeping to two degrees. And given that we're already investing in oil fields that will last for 20 years or more, that seems pretty ambitious. And nobody, nobody seems to have stopped putting their money into oil stocks. So obviously, people don't really believe that we're going to stop burning oil. So it's really ambitious. The 1.5 degrees certainly requires what the Paris Protocol euphemistically calls negative emissions. Negative emissions are just geoengineering under another name. They, they require you to, or at least the favorite way of doing it, is to grow crops that you then burn in a power station, but you capture the carbon coming out of them. And then you grow the crop again burn it, capture the carbon at the power station, bury it, and so on. 
That's essentially a form of geoengineering. So it raises some what I call the deeper options. So there, there were these options about whether we're going to do geoengineering and so on. I think the deeper options are how fast are we really going to reduce emissions? And the question in this country is, is the UK going to set an example or follow the herd? I should have said something before I got to the last three or four slides, that I'm a scientist who understands about climate science. I really know nothing about economics or social science. So my opinion about what we should do is no more valid than your opinion about what we should do by any means, maybe even less so, because some of you may well be economists or social scientists. So I'm just setting out what the options are, although you may hear in my voice some hint of what I think that's not supposed to be coming through. <laughs> so, so the question is, does the UK set an example, or do we lag behind? That's it's a question. It's a, it's a reasonable question that we can ask. Are we going to set a lead, or are we going to follow? How are we going to help vulnerable communities to adapt? Because there is going to be change, and we're probably not going to suffer from it, because it's relative, the climate here can afford to change without it being unpleasant. We're certainly going to overshoot 1.5 degrees, probably 2 degrees. So we're going to try and get back to it. It's not easy, actually. That carbon capture stuff, we're not even doing it yet. We don't know how to do it properly yet. And then if we're going to deliberately play with the controls, up till now we've kind of accidentally played with the controls on the planet by raising CO2. If we're going to deliberately play with the controls by removing CO2 from the atmosphere in the future, where are we going to stop? Why are we going to stop at 1.5? Why wouldn't we carry on to 1 degree or 0 degrees or maybe a bit colder than the pre-industrial? Somebody's got to decide where we're going to stop. And that's actually quite a deep philosophical question as to what's the best climate for a planet it's not immediately obvious that the pre-industrial climate was the best climate that the planet could possibly have. It probably is in the sense that it's the one that populations around the world have adapted to, and if you change it anywhere, it makes it difficult for them. It's the change that makes it difficult, not the actual climate. But nonetheless, it's a question we have to discuss. Okay, so I've talked about what the past tells us, and I hope actually that the past was just interesting for its own right, which is probably the easiest way to give that talk. But in doing that, I've shown a few lessons that the past tells us that helps us to understand the future, and then at the end talked a bit about options for the future. And with that, I'm going to stop, and I think we've got about 10 minutes for questions from the audience. See a question there? Yep. Yep. Uh, just going back to the begin beginning of your talk, um, can you tell me how, how you decide how many years per metre in your ice cores? <laughs> yes. So, in the very best case, where you've got somewhere where the snow falls a lot every year, which isn't the case in the place that I showed the video of, but in the very best case, you can see things that change between summer and winter in the chemistry, and you can count the years. So you can actually count one year, two years, three years. In the place where I'm talking about there, you can't do that. So what you do is you, trans you make a first estimate of how old it is, because you know how much snow falls today. So you know roughly how many years there should be as you go down. And you know how it thins, because that's just physics. So you know how it thins as it gets older. So you can make a first estimate, and then you apply to that some things that you know the age of. And a critical one in that old ice core that I showed you is that near the bottom, at about 780,000 years, is a time when we have the last time the Earth's magnetic field reversed. It's called the Brunus-Matayama reversal. 
And when the Earth's magnetic field reverses from north to south, it's very weak for a period. And when the Earth's magnetic field's weak, you get a lot of cosmic rays. Bear with me, I'm going to get there. You get a lot of cosmic rays, and cosmic rays produce various chemicals that you don't get any other way, like carbon-14 and beryllium-10. Now, the carbon-14 is no good because it has a half-life of only about 5,000 years, so it's all gone by 780,000 years. But the beryllium-10 is still there, and so you can actually see a spike in beryllium-10 almost exactly where we thought 780,000 years was, and then we can fix that and rerun the calculation again. And there are all kinds of things like that that we can put on it. So it's not precise, actually. There's an uncertainty of a few thousand years by the bottom, an uncertainty of a few hundred years near the top. But then we have other ice cores with high snowfall rates where we're much more sure of the age. There's another one here. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, now, if we were to get a doubling of the, uh, of the CO2 level, then we would be, in terms of the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, in a very different situation. I mean, your, your map, which you showed us, the graph you showed us several times, going back a, a million years, having an ice age every 100,000 years, the CO2 levels were never, nowhere near that amount. So from this point forwards, I mean, if we could draw a similar map in a million years' time, and looking at this point in time, it's going to look very different indeed. And given that your models are basically created on looking backwards, just how confident are you really about going forwards? Yeah, well, of course, that's a good question. So there are people who are trying to reconstruct carbon dioxide concentrations going further back in time, where in the past there were times when it was higher. And it was warmer, actually. It's very difficult to reconstruct them, and it's very difficult to be sure about the climate, so that's also quite difficult work. The answer is we can't be really sure. That's why there's such big uncertainties on the estimates of what will happen in the future, and, you, and why, why I can only say there's a 50% chance this will happen. That's based on that. On the other hand, the physics is still the same. So the carbon dioxide will still have the same effect. It's just a question of some of what we call the feedbacks. I mean, there, there obviously comes a point, for instance, when there's no more sea ice. So the sea ice is no longer providing what we call a feedback to amplify the warming. So you have to take that into account. And have we done that correctly? We can't be really sure that we've done that correctly. It's true. It's one of those annoying things that often happens with futurology, where you make a prediction, and you'd really like to be around to say to people, I told you so. But actually, provided you get them to act on what you've said, you'll never see it happen. So you'll never know whether you were right or not. I'm, I can't do any better than that, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, Okay. Uh, thanks for the interesting talk. I really enjoyed it. Can you address um, the impact of sunspot activity, introducing more energy into the uh, climate, and also volcanoes um, belching out CO2? Yeah, so, so the sunspots, they do change, well, at least when you get... Sunspots are a signal that the strength of the sun is changing. They're not a very direct signal that the strength of the sun is changing, but they are a signal. Actually, what they're a signal of is that the, Earth, the sun's magnetic field is changing. But they do show that the sun's strength changes. You know it changes on an 11-year cycle and also on longer cycles. It's a pretty small change in the amount of energy that comes into the atmosphere. That's measured now, and it's really small. It's about 0.1% that it changes. Now, there are ways that that could be amplified to make bigger climate changes than we previously thought. And there was actually a paper came out last week in Nature, which I admit that I've only read the summary of. I haven't read the whole paper, so I may have got it wrong, which does say one way in which that could affect the climate by changing the amount of particles in the atmosphere and therefore the amount of clouds. However, it's clear just by looking at the way climate changes over the 11-year cycle 
that it really can't have a big signal. I mean, you don't see the 11-year cycle in the climate record of the last 200 years. You just can't see anything from the 11-year cycle, for example. So I think sunspots are a relatively small factor, but they, they still need thinking about, about just how much they could be. The volcan volcanic emissions, they certainly have an effect on climate. That's one of the ways that you derive this thing called the climate sensitivity by looking at past volcanic eruptions. Uh, they're actually something, again, where ice cores are really important because the way we know about volcanic eruptions in the past is by looking at sulfuric acid in the ice core. The sulfate in the ice bumbles along until there's a volcanic eruption and then it goes like that and you can see these big peaks and that's because of material put up into the upper atmosphere that comes down into the ice core. They reflect sunlight, so they change the albedo, that's what they do, and that's the basis of one of these ideas for geoengineering, is effectively to have volcanoes going off the whole time by, by putting aerosol into the atmosphere that reflects sunlight. It's, the reason why it's balmy is because you would have to do it forever. You, if you stopped, it would suddenly get very warm. So, so volcanoes do have an effect. They can change the climate by you know, a few tenths of a degree, a really big one by more. Um, and we, we try and study those. There's recently been a huge improvement in the way we date the icicles so that we can tie that, that change in volcanic emissions to the changing climate. Um, it more or less confirms what we already thought about the climate sensitivity. Not sure whether that answered the question, but it at least addressed the question. <laughs> uh, I can see one at the back there, I think. Um. Given current concerns about migration and population movement, do your projections give you a sense of the point in our future at which uh, portions of the globe will become uninhabitable? Um, yes. There are people who have made estimates of that. I'm not that confident about them. And one of the reasons why I concentrated on global climate is because global climate is relatively easy to predict. Regional climate is really hard to predict. I mean, it's for the same reason why it's hard to predict weather in a small region like the UK, because a storm can suddenly change its track. It's hard to predict the climate in a small region. And particularly, it's hard to predict the amount of rainfall, which is what really makes a region uninhabitable. I mean, getting too warm does make it uninhabitable, but having no water normally kicks in first. So it's hard to say exactly where we'll become uninhabitable, except you can be pretty sure it's the places that are already close to uninhabitable. This is a place where scientists like me and social scientists really need to work together, and that's a hard thing to do. It's, we don't talk the same language, and we don't think in quite the same way. So people are trying to do that. There's a big project called Future Earth that I'm involved with that is trying to do that. I think as well it's hard to say it's hard to unravel the factors that would lead to somewhere becoming difficult to inhabit or to migrations. It's the same when you look in the past. People are always saying to me, well, you know, climate caused some change in, Egypt, in Egyptian uh, culture 3,000 years ago, and here's the climate change. Well, it could be. But on the other hand, I, I sometimes wonder whether in 1,000 years' time people will look back and say, well, what caused the demise of the British Empire, and they'll start describing it to climate, and yet we know it was due to all kinds of odd things. And there may well have been a volcano somewhere around the time we lost India or something, but it's, it's, it's not the cause of it. It's really hard to unravel those things. So I, I think the short answer is we just want to avoid as much climate change as we can avoid in order to avoid things like that happening, including migrations.
According to this clock, I've got one minute and three seconds left. So if anyone's got an incredibly quick question that will take them less than 20 seconds to ask. Okay, it's a quick one. How can you be sure, given you've only got Greenland and the Antarctic, that's the only places you've got in the Earth to drill ice cores, how can you be sure that's representative? That's a very good question. The answer is that, because I'm an ice core scientist, I talk a lot about ice cores, but there are climate records, not always in so much detail, going back similar time periods from other methods like lake sediments, marine sediments. For instance, marine sediments, you can see what the temperature at the surface of the ocean was in the past. So there are lots of things you can do to reconstruct climate over the last few tens of thousands of years at least in order to get a global picture. And that's where that five degrees global change actually came from, which I didn't, I didn't show the reasoning. Okay, I'd better stop there. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Very nice.